0: On December 2, 1979, firefighters were responding to the Travel Inn Motor Lodge on 42nd Street in Manhattan, two blocks from Times Square, where it had been reported that there was a fire in room 417. A member of the squad, Jim Rogers, entering the smoke-filled room saw a person lying on one of the room's double beds. Acting quickly, he pulled the motionless figure from the room to the hallway and prepared to start administering CPR. To his horror, once out of the smoke, he found that the body was missing a head. I'm Amanda Morgan, and this is New York's Dark Side. Hello again, everyone. I am back with part two of our coverage of Richard Cottingham, New York's torso killer or the Times Square Ripper, if you prefer. I don't prefer either. I would prefer that he didn't kill anybody, but we wouldn't be talking about him if he hadn't. If you haven't listened already to part one that was released last week, you're going to want to go back and listen to that episode first because we are expanding on information from that episode today. In this episode, we'll be covering Richard Cottingham's New York State victims, as well as diving into the court proceedings and his subsequent convictions. Just as a reminder, this is a dark case involving sexual assault, torture, and unfortunately, some of Cottingham's victims were young girls. I'll give trigger warnings as we go as we get to those points, but this episode may not be for everyone, and that's totally okay. On that note, we're going to dive right into the story because I am ready to be done with this one and go snuggle with my pups and watch some cute puppy and kitten videos. As you may have realized, Richard Cottingham is a terrible person that did very terrible things to his victims. Jack Rosewood in his book, Richard Cottingham, the Torso Killer, talks about how Cottingham was motivated by death. He was motivated by torture, which was why some of his victims lived to tell their story. Many of his victims were not so lucky, and if he's to believed, there may be as many as 100. Some of those victims, he left their bodies marred in a horrible fashion. This was the case on December 2, 1979, when firefighters responded to the Travel Inn Motor Lodge. The television had been left on, and there was smoke pouring from the room. Inside, two bodies were found, one on each of the double bed. Both victims were female, and both were missing their head and their hands. The mattresses of the bed had been doused in a flammable liquid around the area of the women's groins and lit on fire. Firefighters had responded within minutes, which saved the damage from being worse. However, both women had suffered severe burns around their groin and buttocks. The rest of their bodies were untouched by the flames, Both women appeared to have been raped and tortured, their torsos covered in slashes from a bladed instrument. Despite the severe apparent torture and dismembering of the bodies of these two women, the room was spotless, not a speck of blood, a weapon, or other physical evidence of their killer to be found. Whoever had done this had clearly spent a lot of time cleaning up the aftermath, The women's clothing was found piled and folded neatly in the bathtub of the room. The room had been registered a few days prior on November 29th by a man with sandy hair who listed his name as Carl Wilson living in Merlin, New Jersey. The man had not been seen since placing the Do Not Disturb sign on the door. No one knew if the two women had arrived at the same time, or if they had come separately over the course of the few days before the fire. It was apparent to the medical examiner who completed the autopsies that the women had died at different times, but I'm not clear on how much of a gap there was between them. While conducting their investigation, they would learn that the woman who was in line to register for her room behind Richard Cottingham on November 29th had paid particular attention to him, enough to be able to provide sufficient detail for a composite sketch that would be released to the public on December 11th, 1979. Unfortunately, no leads would come from that sketch. The news of the gruesome fate of these two women would send shockwaves through the community, especially to those working the city's streets and the sex trade. In the first episode, we talked about the atmosphere of Times Square, lined with peep shows, massage parlors, and crowded with sex workers plying their trade, and high rates of crime and drug use. In an attempt to identify these women, investigators had to think outside the box. They took the women's clothing from the tub and placed them on two store mannequins, took photographs, and sent them out with detailed descriptions of the clothing to the media and posted them on flyers around the city. One of the victims was believed to have been about 16 years old and had worn a pair of bonjour jeans, a mohair sweater that was dark burgundy, black platform leather boots, and a full-length black coat. Unfortunately, No one came forward recognizing her clothing, and to this day, she remains a Jane Doe. Someone did come forward claiming to recognize the clothing of the other victim, and after completing some x-rays, she was identified as 23-year-old Dita Gudarzi, a high-end escort who had worked out of some of the mob-owned bars and for Iranian drug dealers. Dita had come to America at the age of 8 or 9 from Iran. She had gone to school in Brooklyn, but did not finish high school. As an adult, she moved to Trenton, New Jersey, and would take the train to New York to meet her clients. Her daughter, Jennifer Weiss, would speak on the Netflix docuseries, Crime Scene, Times Square Killer, and share her experience regarding finding out about her birth mother's gruesome death. Jennifer had been adopted when she was about 10 weeks old. When Jennifer was 26, she went to the orphanage to try to find out more about her birth parents. She was given a photo of her mom and clippings from the newspaper articles surrounding her murder. Jennifer would later team up with a forensic historian and author named Peter Vronsky, who had taken interest in the case because he had been staying at the Travel Inn motel during the time period and would later recognize Richard Cottingham as a man carrying a duffel bag that he had rode in an elevator with, they would pair up to try to help solve the mystery of where Dita and the Jane Doe's head and hands were, as they had still not been discovered. We'll talk a bit more about their contributions to the identification of other victims of Richard Cottingham in the third part of this series. One of the places that Dita would go was Plato's Retreat which was a swingers club in manhattan that richard cottingham also liked to frequent and would brag to his co-workers about the different activities that he would observe or partake in there he would discuss the orgy room and how once when he was there he saw a man dragging a woman by her hair and putting needles into her breast how seeing this had turned him on this made his co-workers uneasy and to be honest it makes me uneasy But I don't know the context of this relationship, so I'm not going to comment other than I hope whatever was going on with that was consensual, and I don't mean by his definition of consensual. Moving on. We talked about in the first part of this series that in April of 1980, Richard Cottingham's wife would file for divorce from him, citing extreme cruelty. While we don't know how often he was attacking women, since we're not likely to ever get a full confession from him for his crimes it would appear that the stress from this event would cause Cottingham to escalate. On May 5th, Valerie Street's body was found in room 132 of the Quality Inn Hotel in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. We talked about her in the first episode. A week after that, Pamela Weisenfeld was found in a vacant parking lot in Teaneck, New Jersey. After being drugged, abducted, beaten, we also talked about her in the first episode. Richard wasn't done, though. There was another victim we haven't talked about yet between Pamela's attack and the assault on Leslie Ann O'Dell that would lead to Richard Cottingham's arrest. Three days after attacking Pamela on May 15, 1980, police in the fire department of New York City would again respond to a hotel fire, this time at the Hotel Seville. Inside, they would find the murdered and mutilated body of Mary Ann Jean Rainer, a 25-year-old sex worker who was also a mother of a young boy and had turned to sex work as a way to try to earn money for the upcoming custody battle. This is so fucking sad. I feel like we've talked about, like, situations like this before in our Gilgo Beach coverage. Just heartbreaking. So here's your, your trigger warning, because while they've all been rough to discuss this one, is especially Ruth. Jean had been beaten, tortured, burned, raped, and then strangled like the other victims. This time, however, instead of removing her head, her attacker had surgically removed her breasts and left them displayed on the headboard of the bed. Once again, the room had been meticulously cleaned, leaving no physical evidence behind, which was perplexing to police for such a horrific crime. Jean had been arrested a few days before her murder with the charge of prostitution. At the time of her death, investigators had no leads, but they would be able to connect something from her death to Richard Cottingham. Police would start conducting interviews with sex workers about their johns, trying to find out if there were any that were particularly abusive that they could start to investigate. One former sex worker was interviewed on the Netflix docuseries I mentioned earlier, and she described an experience where she had been abducted and raped by a man, and she believes that was Richard Cottingham. She describes her fear of reporting it, and it's one of the reasons why so many sexual assaults go unreported. She was afraid of coming forward regarding the attack to police because she was afraid her trafficker would hurt her. And the docuseries talks about how this is fairly common with the nature of sex work being criminalized. It makes it such a dangerous environment. They can become stalked or preyed upon because they're not protected by police. The laws around rape and sex work were also very stigmatizing to women in the 1970s. Often law enforcement would want witnesses to the rape in order to press charges, and a lot of times there are not witnesses to the rape. They don't necessarily go out and start raping people in a crowded area. They're done behind closed doors. Regarding sex work, only women were being arrested for engaging in sex work. The men purchasing their services were not charged with a crime. The men recruiting them and pimping them out and trafficking them and exchanging them between each other weren't arrested for a crime. It was the women. When news broke about the arrest of Richard Cottingham across the river in New Jersey for the assault of Leslie Ann O'Dell on May 22nd, police in New York pulled out his old case files from his prior arrest. Just a quick recap from Part 1. On February 12, 1974, Cottingham was arrested for unlawful imprisonment and robbery, on September 4th, 1973, he was arrested for robbery, assault, and sodomy charges. This complaint was made by a sex worker and a pimp. Cottingham would claim the girls were lying. The Times Square task force would reach out to New Jersey police to see if they could connect him to any of their unsolved cases. This is where investigators had some success as they were able to identify a necklace that had been found in Cottingham's trophy room as belonging to Jean Rainer. She had been wearing it in her mugshot when she had been arrested, and it was clearly visible. A ring and necklace also found in the trophy room were identified by two of Dita Godarzy's friends as belonging to her. After his arrest on May 22, 1980, Richard Cottingham would be slammed with a slew of charges, including kidnapping, attempted rape, aggravated assault, Aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, aggravated sexual assault while armed, sodomy and fellatio, possession of a weapon, possession of controlled substances, and the murder of Valerie Ann Street. Two of the women that he had previously assaulted, Susan Geiger and Karen Schultz, we talked about them in the first episode, were able to pick him out of a police lineup as being their attacker. A grand jury would convene, and he was indicted on charges of two more murders, attempted murder, and kidnapping. He maintained his innocence, and on October 5, 1980, he entered a plea of not guilty, and was held on $350,000 bond. His family stood by him, including Janet, who would withdraw her filing for divorce in June of 1980 to try to help defend her husband, His mother, Anna, would sell her home in Florida to help pay for his legal defense, hiring Dennis Conway, a seasoned lawyer who had worked on some previous murder cases and some involving organized crime with an over $35,000 retainer fee. His first trial would start in May of 1981 and lasted four weeks. This was for the murder of Valerie Street, attempted murder of Leslie O'Dell, and kidnapping and assault of Karen Schultz. Pamela Weisenfeld, and Susan Geiger. Karen, Leslie, Pamela, and Susan would all testify in court against Cottingham. Witnesses who watched Cottingham's trial said he was calm and collected, appeared to be very intelligent, and was very involved in his own defense, even getting on the witness stand for about four hours to testify. Some of Cottingham's co-workers would be called as witnesses, as well as two girlfriends that he had maintained while being married to Janet. Barbara Lucas, a nurse at Bellevue Hospital that he dated for about two years, and another nurse who worked at Montefiore, Jean Connolly. Jean met Cottingham at his favorite bar in Manhattan. She kept meticulous notes in a diary that would help disprove Cottingham's alibi. He would claim to be working when the attacks took place, There were many dates that Jean had listed in her diary that fell on days Richard was scheduled to work his 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift at Blue Cross Blue Shield, but Jean listed that they had met between 8 and 9 p.m. at Blue Cross Blue Shield's office and that had gone to a variety of social events. Jean would admit under oath that she had made some additions to the diary after Cottingham was arrested, for example, on a date that she had already marked that she had been with Cottingham, April 18, 1980, she had made an addition that, on that day, they had gone to a circus. She said that she had done this at the direction of police after speaking with them. Barbara Lucas had met Cottingham at a bar he frequented called Flanagan's, which was where he had taken Susan Geiger before drugging and abducting her. She provided some testimony that I personally found a bit disturbing, She would testify that Cottingham would sometimes go out with her under the alias of Blair, the name of his firstborn son. Gene, his other girlfriend, would also confirm that Cottingham liked to use different aliases, having initially introduced himself as Jimmy, but also using the name Blair at times. Like, why the fuck would you want to use your son's name as an alias? And, how? like, even more disturbing... To me, like, what if he used that alias to some of his victims? Like, we'll never know. Fuck up. Anyway, that's just my own personal side note. Barbara would also end up providing testimony about some of Cottingham's darker interests, being questioned about some of the books found in his trophy room. One called The Stalking Man by William J. Coughlin was one of the books that was brought up a book about a man taught by his father to hunt and mutilate women in the cities. Which, of course, reading a book with some dark themes doesn't prove that he's guilty of anything, but paired with the other evidence, it's just not... I don't know. Barbara would also testify that during their time together, Richard Cottingham had driven a green Thunderbird, which Susan Geiger had identified him as driving when he had abducted her, and that Cottingham had taken her to the Quality Inn Hotel in... Barbara would say that Cottingham had taken her to the Quality Inn Hotel in Hasbro Heights twice while they were dating as well. Cottingham's defense would pull in some of his co-workers to try to help build their case for his innocence, but this would prove to be a mixed bag that they didn't entirely anticipate. One of them, a man named Anthony, who worked with Cottingham for 13 years, would testify that Cottingham had been at work on two crucial dates, March 22, 1978, the day that Karen Schilt had been attacked, having signed in at 3.45 p.m. on the 22nd and out at 12.15 on the 23rd, as well as May 4, 1980, the night Valerie Street had been murdered. Both shifts had computer utilization logs and timesheets that had been signed by Richard Cottingham, and Anthony would testify that as far as he could recall, Cottingham would not sign for things that he hadn't done. Another coworker, a woman named Arlene, would testify to having vivid dreams of Cottingham working on October 12, 1978, when she was home on doctor-ordered rest the following day on October 13th, because of the stress of the workload that prior day had been so intense. October 12th was the night that Susan Geiger had been abducted in attack, and she recalled him having a mustache that day, which Susan testified that the man who had abducted her had been clean shaven Another co-worker, Eustace, provided testimony regarding the work that computer operators did at Blue Cross Blue Shield. He would also testify that he couldn't confirm that Cottingham had worked some of the dates in question that others had testified to his presence for. When he was shown some computer utilization logs that had been signed by Cottingham on days that there was no record of Cottingham actually working, his coworker said that Cottingham may have signed them by mistake and someone else had scratched his signature out in red. So a signature means nothing. A coworker named Bruce would testify to not liking Cottingham and would provide information about Cottingham's love of gambling and boasts about how he would flash huge sums of money at sex workers to get them to come with him, how he would claim to drug drinks and then take them to New Jersey motels. There was an issue with this testimony as Bruce owed Cottingham a debt of about $9,000 for a reason that was not disclosed. It could be argued that Bruce may have ulterior motive for his testimony. The testimony and evidence brought forth by another co worker, though, was quite damning for Cottingham, and that was the testimony of Dominic Volt. He would testify about similar discussions with Cottingham about his practices with sex workers, flashing large sums of money and luring them to New Jersey. Cottingham had also drawn Dominic a diagram of a hotel as he explained what he would do with the sex workers there. Dominic had kept this diagram, and it would later be uncovered that this was the perfect diagram of the quality and hotel in Hasbrook Heights, where Marianne Carr and Valerie Street's bodies were found and Leslie Ann O'Dell had been attacked. The prosecution would call an FBI expert in to testify on the fingerprint evidence that they had obtained from the handcuffs found on Valerie Street, which he would confirm were a definitive match to Richard Cottingham. Cottingham requested to be placed on the stand to testify in his own defense and would admit to having extramarital affairs. He told the jury that he had dreamed of becoming a professional gambler, claiming to be quite good at it, and would often come out on top. He would admit to participating in bondage, telling the jury that the idea of bondage had fascinated him since he was young. He told the jury that Leslie Ann O'Dell had agreed to bondage after he had assured her that she wouldn't be hurt and that she was agreeable to any kind of sex that he requested in their time together when they had settled on a sum of $180. He would deny having used a leather gag on Leslie, even though he had them with him in his bag of horrors, stating that he had just recently purchased them in May, but they would not fit over her mouth. He testified that the fake guns he had in his bag were actually a gift for his son, but that Janet wouldn't allow him to give the guns to them, so he had just held on to them. And the white adhesive tape in his bag, that was to help secure their son's diapers because he was a truly caring parent. When questioned as to why his thumbprint was on the handcuffs found on Valerie Street, he claimed that that was nothing and meant nothing. When questioned about biting Leslie Ann O'Dell, leaving terrible injuries on her breath, he would testify that he didn't recall doing that, and when they showed him a picture of her injury, he said, I only see a scratch. In total, Richard Cunningham spent about four hours on the stand for this trial, and it would do him no good. In June of 1981, Cottingham was convicted of 15 of the 21 felony counts against him. Little trigger warning here, he would make the first of his three failed suicide attempts by drinking six ounces of liquid antidepressant that he was able to obtain from another inmate. He was taken to Hackensack Hospital where he was stabilized and returned to jail. On July twenty fifth, 1981, He was sentenced to 173 to 197 years in jail for the murder of Valerie Ann Street and the assaults of Leslie Ann O'Dell, Karen Schilt, and Susan Geiger. He was also fined $2,350 on the charge of assault on Pamela Weisenfeld. He was found not guilty. This is only the beginning of his legal battle, though, because the charges for the murder of Mary Ann Carr had been held for a separate trial, and he would still need to go to trial in New York. After his first conviction in New Jersey, the family would fire Dennis Conway as Cottingham's defense attorney, claiming that he was ill-prepared for Cottingham's defense. His sister Carol would state that even though Richard was involved in paying for sex work, gambling, and loan sharking, He was not a murderer and alleged that he was potentially set up by the Mafia for the charges that he had been convicted of. He would be represented by a new attorney, Frank Wagner, in the court proceedings for the murder of Mary Ann Carr. The prosecution would try to offer Cottingham a type of plea deal, but he rejected this. The prosecution had some challenges ahead of them with Mary Ann Carr's murder due to some key differences when compared to the trauma that Valerie Street had endured prior to her death. Mary Ann did not appear to have been tortured in the same manner. She didn't have bite marks. There were no indications of sexual assault, even though her clothing had been cut. She had been strangled, potentially with a necklace. The pathologist who had performed her autopsy had gone back and forth initially on whether she was strangled or had been smothered for settling back on her being strangled as both of her lungs had collapsed, resulting in her death. There were no witnesses who could testify to seeing Richard Cottingham with Mary Ann Carr. There was no physical evidence that connected Cottingham directly to her or her death found on her. The only fingerprint found in her apartment when she had gone missing was one of the half finished drink glasses that Mary Ann had left behind in her apartment, but it was from one of the officers who had responded to the initial call from her mother in law after Mary Ann failed to show up to her house and they were unable to contact her. In order to gain a conviction, the prosecution would have to employ some outside-of-the-box thinking and would utilize New Jersey's Rule 55, which would allow them to present evidence and testimony from the prior court case on this trial. In order to do this, the prosecutor would have to prove that the circumstances or facts. Presented as testimony in this trial from Cottingham's previous criminal history was relative to either the motive, plan, or identity presented as that of the defendant that would prove that the same defendant who committed those crimes committed the one currently on trial. I'm not going to pretend to be a criminal justice expert by any means, but this makes me a little uneasy. It gives me the same type of vibes I got during the Don Bowles case where the testimony of a known criminal who had previously lied on the witness stand, John Harvey Adamson, was what convicted Max Dunlap to life in prison without possibility of parole. Regardless, this matter was brought before Judge Hout, who had presided over Cottingham's previous trial, and it was up to him to make the ruling on whether he would allow testimony from the previous case to enter this one. He listened to both the prosecutor and the defense plead their cases, There were three similarities between Valerie Street and Marianne Carr that the judge did accept, that was the use of adhesive over both of their mouths, that there were handcuffs used on their hands and ankles, and that both were strangled. There were more things that were dissimilar in nature between the two crimes. First were the differences in their lifestyles and abduction. Valerie Street was a sex worker picked up in Manhattan and brought to New Jersey, while Mary Ann Carr was a married medical technician abducted from either her apartment or the parking lot. Second was the fact that Valerie endured torture and had evidence of both being intoxicated and drugged, whereas Mary Ann was not. There were also signs of sexual assault on Valerie Street found at autopsy. Leslie Ann O'Dell had testified to her rape and sodomy, whereas there were no signs of this activity occurring to Mary Ann Carr. Judge Hout ultimately decided that he was going to deny the Rule 55 request and not allow any of the previous testimony to be admitted as evidence in the Marianne Carr case, ruling that the similarities when compared to the, quote, very substantial dissimilarities cannot be held to be so nearly identical in method as to earmark the crime against Carr as the defendant's handiwork. The court cannot find the modus operandi so unusual and distinctive that it constitutes a signature, end quote. The prosecutor was unhappy with this, and he took the matter to New Jersey's appeal court. Ten days later, the appeals court released their decision, where they unanimously reversed Judge Hout without written explanation and allowed all the testimony to be admitted to court. Cottingham's defense attorney would file an appeal. The New Jersey Supreme Court decided not to hear the appeal, and ordered Bergen County to move forward with the trial of Richard Cottingham for the murder of Marianne Carr. Both the prosecutor and Cottingham's defense attorney would request that Judge Hout step down from overseeing this trial, which he agreed to do. With a new judge in place, the trial was set to begin on February 22, 1982. During the pretrial session, Frank Wagner, the defense attorney, would make two requests on behalf of Richard Cottingham. First, for a non-jury trial, which was denied. Second, for a sequestered jury, which was also denied by the judge. With that, the proceedings began. Three days into the jury selection process, however, as Cottingham was being led to the courtroom, he would collapse and end up hospitalized with a bleeding gastric ulcer. A mistrial was called to give him time to be treated. The case would go back to court in September of 1982. This time, Richard Cottingham would be granted a bench trial, which had previously been denied when the case went to court. Most of the testimony heard in this case would be the same as the previous court proceeding, but they would call in some extra key witnesses. First was the neighbor that had seen Mary Ann Carr in the parking lot with a man he said resembled her husband Michael. The judge felt that this was significant as it proved that Michael was in Rochester, over 350 miles away, when Mary Ann was abducted and murdered. Both men were similar in stature, had slightly similar hair color, and similar facial hair at the time of the event. Testimony from Mary Ann Carr's mother-in-law, Catherine, and Catherine's nephew, Robert, would help provide evidence about the time frame of Mary Ann's disappearance. A friend and co-worker of Richard Cottingham would give testimony about the key in Richard's possession, one that went to the outside door of Mary Ann Carr's apartment building, providing a potential connection between Cottingham and Carr. John Van Soest lived in Ledgewood Terrace Apartment Complex. He had moved there shortly after the Cottinghams had moved out. Shortly after moving in, his apartment was ransacked and robbed. He would testify that he had a lot of friends that lived in building 462, which is why he had a key to the building and the key had gone missing from his possession. Marianne Carr lived in apartment building 462. It was unclear if the key going missing had occurred in the robbery of his apartment or if it had gone missing while he was at work. Regardless, he believed it was his key that was found in Richard Cottingham's safe. There was some additional testimony presented that the two men had a falling out over a loan that Cottingham had agreed to give him for $15,000, but they couldn't come to an agreement on the terms of the loan. Van Sost also would testify that he and Cottingham had discussed the murder of Marianne Carr after it happened, including topics of how someone would have had to have known her or had a key to the building to have abducted her from her apartment. The most damning evidence against Richard Cottingham came from Dr. Louis Napolitano, whose testimony covered a survey of several murders that had occurred in Bergen County in the last 10 years. He compared the autopsy of Mary Ann Carr with the autopsy that he had himself completed on Valerie Street and concluded that they were nearly identical. Another forensic pathologist also examined both bodies and agreed that the cause of death was nearly identical. For his part, Richard Cottingham started to get antsy as the trial started to wind to a close and he decided that he wanted to make a run for it. The judge had ordered him not to be shackled coming in and out of the courtroom as a courtesy. Cottingham decided after lunch while the court session was on a break that after using the men's room, it was the perfect opportunity to make his escape. He pushed past the two officers who were guarding him, ran down three flights of stairs and out the main door into the streets of downtown Hackensack. He was caught a few moments later when he hesitated, unsure of where to go and tackled to the ground by a few officers that were outside. The judge decided to continue the trial without interruption and on October 13, 1982, he was found guilty of Mary Ann Carr's murder and sentenced to an additional 25 years to life with a minimum of 30 years to be served consecutively with his previous sentence. On March 30th, 1983, Cottingham was transferred from Trenton's Maximum Security Prison to Rikers Island in Manhattan, nicknamed the Tombs, to go on trial for the murders of Dita Godarzi, the Jane Doe, and Jean Rayner. On May 31, 1984, the trial would begin. Much like his first trial, Richard Cottingham was an active participant in his defense. He was taking notes during his witness testimony, engaging with his defense team, maintaining his composure all the while professing his innocence of the crimes he was charged with. However, trigger warning here. As the trial began to draw to a close, Cottingham would make his second attempt on his life by breaking his glasses and using a shard of the lens to cut his wrist. He was taken to Bellevue Hospital and treated, and while he was there, he was seen by a psychiatrist to determine if he was mentally competent to continue his defense. The psychiatrist, Dr. Robert J. Chalamain, would report... Quote, the defendant has a history of trying to simulate mental illness. He did the same on our unit. Defendant can also act out impulsively in self-harm behavior. This is not the result of mental illness. It is the result of a characterological pathology, End quote. The judge ruled that Cottingham was fit to continue trial. Cottingham would again try this ploy, attempting to cut his wrist while in open court with a blade that he had hidden in the bandages from his previous attempt while yelling, It's a plot against me! I'm innocent! I'm innocent! This is all wrong! It's wrong! Despite this, on July 9, 1984, the jury began deliberations and returned less than two hours later with their conviction, guilty of second-degree murder in all three counts. He was sentenced to an additional 75 years to life in prison and sent back to New Jersey's Trenton State Prison. I really wish that I could say this was the end of it, but truly this is only just getting started into what we know about Richard Cottingham. Due to the work done by Bergen County's Detective Robert Anziolotti, as well as Jennifer Weiss, the daughter of Dita Gudarzi, and Peter Bronsky, the forensic historian and author. But we'll get to that in part three. You can find a full list of my source material for this episode in the show notes and on the website www.nydarksidepodcast.com. I also just, again, want to give the resources I gave at the end of the first episode because I know we've dealt with some very dark topics and you never know, there could be a listener out there that maybe these would help. So those two organizations, again, are the Polaris Project that operates the National Human Trafficking Hotline in the United States. So if you or someone you know is involved in a human trafficking situation and you need help, you can call 1-888-373-7888 or text BEFREE, that's B-E-F-R-E-E, to the number two three three seven three three. You can also go to their website, PolarisProject.org. They have a ton of information, resources, statistics, and education around human trafficking and information about the work they are doing in prevention and for the survivors of human trafficking. There's also the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN. That's another resource. They are the nation's largest anti-sexual violence resource, and they run the National Sexual Assault Hotline. So if you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, you can call 1-800-656-4273 for help and support. They also have a downloadable mobile app with different self-help resources and things, or you can visit their website website. Www.brain. it's r-a-in-n.org. As always, make sure you're following the show on your podcast platform of choice to be notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow the show page on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with one more Cottingham Darkness episode, and then we're done. Unless... You know, he decides he wants to provide some more confessions before he croaks. But otherwise, I hope you go find some cute bunny, kitten, puppy videos. You know, enjoy a hot shower, whatever you need to get out of this darkness. I will see you next week. As always, I hope you keep listening and I hope you stay curious.